0: Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday. The work work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news analysis and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good, New York? You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America, organization in the United States, with 56,000 members nationwide, and NYCADSA, run by our 5,500-plus 5, members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs last week's general election in the united kingdom was a devastating loss for working a vulgar nationalism triumphed over democratic socialism millions will suffer as boris johnson and the tories offer up the remnants of british social democracy to the highest bidder we grieve for all those who will party of the conservative party we stand in solidarity with socialist labor party organizers and every activist organization Uh, fighting for free movement and a welfare state for all. As we enter a major election year here in the United States, we need this power to states is possible and within our reach, contrary to what our capitalist owned media will say in response to these election results. We're joined today by Democratic Socialists of America National Political Committee member Megan Savada and former North Brooklyn organizer Rosie Clark, Who has since immigrated to the United Kingdom – no, who has now since returned to the United Kingdom um, after living here in New York for a few years Party to defeat the conservatives. And what implications this has for socialists in the United States and around the world. But first, a live (laughs) – a ProPublica investigation has revealed that the consulting firm McKinsey Corrections to, st- to study in STEM violence in Rikers Island lied in reports to show a decrease in violence in the prison. Instead, violence significantly highered. Assembly Speaker Carl Hatze may be the real estate industry's strongest ally in Albany to kill tenant-friendly friend- a new report prepared by criminal justice reform activists documents the abuses of operative meant to target gangs that began under police commissioner Ray Kelly and continued under William Braden and James O'Neill, both appointed by Mayor de Blasio. The report suggests an extension of stop and frisk. Despite protests, de Blasio insists that the gang databases will continue. Other NYPD officers have constant uh, – Constantin Tachas, currently the second in command of Brooklyn's transit service, to target black and Latino men for fare beating. And other. Con Edison, the privately owned utility company that provides gas and electricity to much of New York City, has been in 2020. Con Ed wants to raise electric prices 13 percent and gas prices 25 percent over the next three years. After negotiations in federal court. New York City is suspending the, one time, the special one-time worth of rent for homeless residents. Often, an program found that many shelter residents were pressured by officials to rent subpar housing in areas outside the former homeless outreach workers slammed the mayor's outreach NYC plan for addressing homelessness in the city, calling it a massive misdirection of effort and resources, and saying that any plan that doesn't include permanent housing for the homeless is inadequate. A city limits investigation looks at how New York City treats uh, comprise roughly 70% of city homeless shelter residents. On December 1st, over 21,000 children slept in city shelters. All right, and that's it for our um, weekly headlines. Uh, the week, An incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and at NYC are joined um, by Megan, a member of the National Political Committee for the Democratic Socialists of America, and a former North Brooklyn organizer, uh, Rosie, who has since returned to the United Kingdom and the United Kingdom elections, and what um, implication this has for socialists here in the United Kingdom. and Rosie, are you there?
1: Yes, I am here. Hey,
0: Rosie. Um, Hi. Hey, Megan. Uh, so uh, let's just, uh, I guess we'll begin um, with you, Megan. Um, what forces pushed you to join the join DSA and um, what sort of organizing have you been engaged in?
2: Yeah, um, those are all great questions um, and I just want to say first thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you and Rosie about UK elections and kind of what it means for us in the US.
0: Thank um, you for being I with joined,
3: us.
2: Of course. I joined DSA uh, in 2017. Um, I think I had always thought of myself as a socialist, but didn't know, I didn't have a home, didn't have a place to organize, um, and, and wasn't sure if there really was a way to organize around socialism in the United States. Um, I think I felt like a lot of people sort of, um, I, I think I had lost hope. I think I felt like the Democrats were centrist. There was like nothing I could do except for organize my neighbors. And, and I was I was happy, happy doing that. Um, and then Bernie Sanders ran for president in 2016 um, and started naming the millionaires and the billionaires as the people over there who were making profits off of the 99% off of the rest of us um, and that that wasn't fair. Um, and he started organizing people around this clear class message and, and engaging people in class struggle on a, on a level that I just hadn't seen in my lifetime. Um, and I got... Very excited um, and I got involved Um, and after the primary I I joined DSA um, because I wanted to keep organizing and I wanted to keep fighting um, with a group of people who understood that we had to organize the working class um, against capital if we wanted to to take on the capital system and and change it Um, so that's that's what got me here Um, and in DSA I do do a lot of things as you said I'm on the National Political Committee Um, And and in that role, I'm I'm the chair of the DSA for Bernie campaign, uh, which means that I get to uh, talk to people all over the country who are running DSA for Bernie campaigns and think about how we can make the greatest impact um, in this election season and how we can grow DSA in this moment.
0: Yeah, I think you hit on a few, uh, like, themes that we hear from our guests When they're discussing about how they got involved in socialism and the either the critical role that the social movements before the 2016 primary or the 2016 primary itself had in activating um people who are you know really fed up with the democratic establishment with increasing inequality with the suffering that working class people face every day and the campaign which we'll be discussing later in the episode Um, provided people with a a vision and a force to articulate their politics into. Um, So now we're going to go across uh, the pond, uh, as they say, um, (laughs) and and Rosie, I guess a similar set of questions for you. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. a little I'm sure your experience is a little bit different being British. But, you know, what what got you involved in the movement for socialism? Um, Why did you join DSA while you're here in the States? Um, And what like other organizing have you been engaged in?
1: Sure. So I've always been politically engaged, but I didn't really become radicalized, so to speak, until my mid-20s. I grew up very privileged, very comfortable. Uh, I grew up in a pretty, like, white area. Uh, There was a big class divide, but it wasn't something that I was conscious of when I was young. Um, But when I really started to interrogate my own privilege and how it intersected with the systems of power that, you know, exist to oppress people, um, I really found that I connected with socialism ideologically and as the most practical kind of alternative to capitalism. And I do think that coming from the UK, you know, a country with a strong socialist history, uh, it's, it's maybe feels more natural to, to make that connection. You know, we haven't seen quite the same degree actually until recently of, of like red baiting that other countries have, who have had successful socialist governments, or in fact, had successful socialist governments that have been overthrown by America. Um, We managed to like hold on to us for a minute. So similarly to Megan and probably similarly to a lot of people, uh, I joined the SA after the Trump election and I joined mainly because I was feeling lost. I was feeling helpless and it seemed like a good resource for accessing the tools that I needed to learn how to organize beyond my pretty limited experience. Like, I'd done workplace organizing, um, but not to any great degree. I'd never canvassed before. I'd never, like, had the kind of, you know, agitating conversations with people that you need to have as an organizer. Um, and DSA, you know, kind of presented itself as an active site of resistance against not just capitalism, but the new administration. And, you know, it was a space full of people who shared my vision of a better future, so it just made sense to to join.
0: Yeah. The the way that DSA has served a role, not only just like presenting this vision of democratic socialism, but as a space where people, you know, collective struggle through developing the skills that it take. Oh, I can go and do this thing. I'm immediately an organizer. Like organizer is organizing is a skill and a talent and a strategy that has to be. And so I think yeah. the way that you frame that um, is a really critical way of thinking about it. Um, and so now we're going to a transition into what happened, the, you know, the, the real tragedy that happened in the UK election. And I'm going to direct most of these questions towards you, Rosie, because you are our source over there in the UK. But Megan, feel free to jump to add. Um, I'd like this to be conversational as much as possible. Um, but so, Rosie, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the conservative party been in power, what have been their policies and how have they devastated working class people and communities of color in the United Kingdom?
1: But the Tories, as they're commonly known, and I'll probably use that um, name for them. Uh, they've been in power in the scene, um, first under David Cameron, who you may remember had a sexual relationship with a pig when he was in, in college. Uh, it's one of his biggest legacies. Um, he was followed by Theresa May. He, <laughs> he resigned after his EU referendum vote massively backfired. Um, Anna Johnson, who is uh, a terrifying figure who was uh, inexplicably mayor of London for eight years. Uh, so he's our, our current. Cameron's biggest legacy is the EU, the result of which really reflects to a large extent Britain's huge problem with nationalism and the kind of hangover that we have with our colonial and imperial past, a really ideal platform to empower white national independence party the british national party and in fact people like you know the future p.m boris johnson so that was that was david cameron um and he was followed truly dire legacy um including the windrush scandal grenfell uh, extremely innocent immigrants and very dramatic cuts to welfare Uh, and obviously she monumentally messed up her one job which was to see Britain leave the European Union, she can even manage to do that, uh, which takes, has been prime minister for a very short amount of time. Uh, first of all, you know, he, he was elected um, to stand while, um, well, after May, kind of set to, you know, a more permanent position, particularly um, arranged the election to happen before Brexit, which gave himself the best chance of winning. and. He ran a lot of in his campaign that gave he would get Brexit done. Right. And that we would never have to hear about Brexit again, um, which a lot of people honestly want. Uh, he is a liar. He's an unashamed racist and misogynist and Islamophobe about um, any of those things. Some of his policies. Uh, consist of banning things like um, BDS he wants to ban strikes by trade unions. And obviously, probably the most infamous plan is to outside interests and to perhaps adopt a model that's most familiar to, to Americans, but entirely and for private insurance.
0: Well, my serious uh, condolences to <laughs> anyone who has to experience the American healthcare system is have done a lot of damage um, to working class people Mm -hmm. in uh, Britain for the past 10 years while they've been in power and arguably, um, well, I'd say definitely since they emerged in the 1830s and you can make the argument that they've been around since like the 1600 British aristocracy and gentry. So they um, are people who are very opposed to equality, um, liberty and solidarity. And they continue with the United Kingdom, unfortunately. And, mm-hmm. I th- and I think what you covered there, um, not explicitly, but it's really crucial to think about before uh, these next questions. The Tories have won a series of elections um, over the past 10 years. They've defeated a wide number of labor leaders, not just Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so when there's a lot there's a lot of blame going around that it's like this radical leftism that led to the victory of the Tories, but the Tories have defeated a number of centrist ca- candidates um, over the past 10 years, and labor has been in decline for a long time. In mind, who is Jeremy Corbyn? Like, why did his leadership represent a shift in the labor party? And what role did momentum play in both his ascendance and during the recent election?
1: So Jeremy Corbyn, a.k.a. The Absolute Boy, um, he's currently serving until March. He was first elected into that role in 2015. Um, And before that and throughout this time, he's also a member of parliament for a London constituency uh, in North London called Islington. And he's been there since a lifelong activist. He's been involved in the anti-fascist movement, the anti-apartheid movement, campaign for nuclear disarmament, He advocated for a united war. He's extremely pro-immigrant, extremely pro-refugee. He basically is the opposite of Boris Johnson. You know, he supports the unity of uh, the working class and the empowerment of folks who are youthfulism. Um, His leadership really represented, you know, a big shift back to the left. And this was after years of of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown who had implemented very unbeaten decisions like joining America in the Iraq war, increasing college tuition fees, and cutting benefits um, for healthcare and employment. So Jeremy's um, effect on membership in the Labour Party was pretty dramatic. The membership shot up during his leadership campaign, and after, in large part that's due to a really strong desire for the kind of policies that he, you know, believes in and proposes this history and and people who have struggled through new labour and are really desperate for something different Um, that in the 2017 election which us on the left like to think of as our win even though we technically lost uh, we increased our share of the vote to 40% which was a 10% vote swing which was the largest since 1945 the end of the war share fell from 40% to 32% um, and and now our our lowest number of seats in party crushing um yeah, you in s- terms of momentum sorry
0: no no no. go ahead go ahead on momentum please uh yeah
1: i'll just do momentum real quick so for a political in 2015 right after corbyn won leader um they're probably best described as a grassroots movement of activists and organizers and you do have gentlemen you pay dues to both organizations um they have kind of three primary goals which are to win elections for labor and to contribute towards a wider uh, social movement uh, in mobilizing enormous numbers of people one of their key strategies has been targeting marginal seats rather than defending safe seats they did that in 2017 and 2019 they do a huge amount of digital, um and they are very effective in targeting uh, labor members and voters who live overseas and i know that this time 10pm on election night, they were bussing people out all over the country to canvas and knock on doors and get people out to the polling station. So, you know, they've received criticisms. Um, some are valid, some are not valid, but I have a huge amount of respect for them. Uh, I'm actually a member of Momentum myself. I think that the energy and the time and the passion that is invested by Momentum, you know, in towards achieving a socialist future is is incredible and should be respected.
0: Yeah, so like momentum I guess for maybe for people who are familiar with something like DSA or mm-hmm. the Democratic Party here in the US, momentum is distinct because the Labor Party is different. It's a different kind of party than the Democratic Party in the US. It's it's a it's an actual like organized institution with members and like momentum can exist with inside it and try to shift its politics that way while really an arm of the state and a sort of astroturf Organization. There used to be many of these big party machines that they've kind of shrunk. So like something like DSA is outside of the, the debates about that within DSA about what relation I think it kind of um, th- through that analysis, it kind of provides like the, the critical distinctions between both countries. I um, mean, something that you were hitting at. Before was the, the success had in 2017 as compared to this recent election, and something that was central to their the labor success in 2017 um, was at a number of uh, like left wing policies nationalization um, so can you dive in a little bit uh, to what the uh, labor manifesto, like why did labor perform so significantly worse um, this past year than in 2017? And like, what role did media smears um, play in undermining this campaign?
1: Sure. I, I really don't think that, I mean, I'm biased because I thought our manifesto was in there that almost moved me to tears, like the establishment of like an employment's right department, you know, the, the kind of focus on, Rebuilding working class power and unions, in our our green New Deal platform, the green industrial revolution, amongst other things. I don't think that the manifesto this this time question is what happened in 2019 to increase the hatred of Jeremy Corbyn um, more than anything. Although we'll get to Brexit, which is you know an, a unique part of our defeat. So I don't think that this change was sudden. I think. It is a grasping of the fact by many people that Corbyn fundamentally believes that white British lives are of equal value with the lives of other people, immigrants, refugees. And Manifesto was radical, and it was radical, probably too radical for a lot of New Labour and neoliberal MPs in the party um, who you know consistently do undermine him. Jeremy's, you know, always been outspoken about his anti imperialist you know, pro-refugee, pro-immigrant beliefs and activism. And he's held them for his whole career, just like Sanders. And that's one of the fundamental reasons that we support him. But for people, you know, the belief, misguided belief that's aggravated and refugees are ruining, quote unquote, British life and British culture. um, Jeremy is a threat to, you know, this way of life and this culture. Um, as much as, you know, immigrants. I think to a great extent it's an issue of a part of the electorate that is holding on to, you know, Britain's racist imperial and colonial legacy and through their voting, upholding power structures that are noses to spite their faces, frankly, and they voted for a party and a Brexit policy that will decimate our economy, our health service, our public services, um, you know, regardless of, who you are what you look like whether you're a citizen or so there's that small issue of how you know (laughs) our problem with nationalism um but brexit is its own unique issue and kind of where the 2019 uk election is is very different from the 2020 us election and i think i do think that labor dealt with brexit poorly overall i think you know, by opting for a second referendum in the 2019 manifesto, labour as um, betraying some democratic mandate, and it did really give support to Boris. Our own membership itself was divided by the Brexit vote. You know, there were people, you hear them called lexiteers, you know, people on the left who voted to leave, support of the referendum result. And um, between 2017 and 2019, our policy, you know, it flipped. Um, in 2017, we said no referendum, no second referendum. And in 2019, about two weeks before the, uh, the election date, we said, oh, actually, you know, we will have a second referendum. If you want one, it won't be the same as the first one. It will be different. Uh, it was ambiguous. It was too late. And I think ultimately um, we ended up not pleasing anybody. And the, me- the mainstream media coverage of Corbyn has been extremely hostile Uh, You know, one of the um, the kind of very old traditional TV channel, TV news channels, um, as well as all the major newspapers, except, you know, a few. Uh, They've all engaged in a pretty extensive smear campaign of Corbyn and his supporters. They pushed Tory propaganda, um, but they've also demonstrated the kind of bias uh, that we expect in the American media, but, uh, you know, over in England, we love that. Um, it's simply not true. Um, I've been, <laughs> I've been <Murdoch>. shocked, frankly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, so at least really to get any decent coverage of the labor campaign, you had to be following, you know, the right people on Twitter, um, and, you know, listening to the right podcasts. But obviously, so for the layperson, the only information they were getting was from the news. And we know from our canvases that. The media's representation, representation is they were calling him a terrorist or a terrorist sympathizer. You know, they're calling him a communist um, and, you know, other far worse things, frankly. So, so yeah, I think the, the media has a lot to answer for.
0: I, I, that's a, a really important point, the, the power of the corporate media to manipulate um, messages. And that's something that we really think about here at Revolutions Per Minute. And on WBAI in general, so we're going to, you know, transfer the conversation um, more to the US. And uh, I think Megan's going to get involved a little little more, but we'd love for you to stick around, Rosie, and thank you so much for all your insights about what's going on in the UK. Um, But I also just want to remind Our listeners, that uh, you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that at our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, and you can find us on Twitter at NYC. RPM. We've been talking about the election in the United Kingdom, and one of our guests, Rosie, just brought up a really important point about how in mainstream media smears, corporate media really um, redirected the conversation in the United Kingdom uh, during that election to center the national question, to center Brexit, to smear labor leader Jeremy Corbyn, and to diminish the amount of discourse that and focus on the very popular labor manifesto, the policies in there that people really, um, really want that poll like uh, overwhelmingly um, with majoritarian support. And so here at um, WBAI and revolutions per minute. We're part of a movement to build independent media. And something like WBI is under attack. It's under attack by those same forces, by corporate media, by hedge funds, by even the nonprofit uh, industrial complex. There are people who want to take over this radio station, kind of dilute its message, or really just sell it for parts, just like Boris Johnson wants to sell the NHS. For parts. They want them to strip it. It's the same sort of neoliberal capitalist strategy. And it's really crucial for you, if you have the resources, to pledge your support for the station. If you have money to give, uh, you can go to give. To WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBA.org. Or, you know, if you're a big fan of our show here, Revolutions Per Minute, and you really like the content that we're having, that we're bringing in people from the United Kingdom to talk about um, the election over there, that we have someone from DSA's National Political Committee live on air. If you support this show, go to WBAI.org. Uh, that's WBAI.org. And pledge to become a buddy. You can become like a continual supporter. Say that Revolutions Per Minute is your favorite show and then pledge your support. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, so now we're going to transition from the elections in the United Kingdom to the implications for U.S. socialists in the upcoming election here in 2020, both on the presidential level, but also there are a wide number of candidates running on local, state, state and congressional races that are running as openly self-declared democratic socialists. So Megan, um, you are, you know, on the National uh, Political Committee, you are key leading figure in DSA's Bernie campaign. What can DSA learn from labor's loss last week? What are the similarities between the political struggles in each country? But what are also the key distinctions?
2: That's a great question. Um, I think it's really important for us as socialists to be you know um, studying and analyzing um, what's going on around the world. Um, and obviously, the parallels and the distinctions between what's going on in the US and uk is is particularly salient and important for us to talk about um, and study and think about what it means for us. Um, and it was really amazing listening to Rosie. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I, I think the thing that I have really been thinking about, uh, since the election, and something that I believe is really salient um, implication for DSA members and, and honestly socialists around the world, um, is that you know successful socialist electoral projects really need class struggle to be a core component of them. Um, and I think that that means a revived level of strike and social movement activities. Um, but it also means that you know class struggle needs to be a core component of the campaign's messaging. Um, And and to be honest, I think that the amount that Brexit had to play into the election in the U.K. meant that labor was actually it it was harder for them to like forefront class struggle in their messaging as much as they wanted to and really tried to. Um, I think it it was really hard. Um, But I I think that there's a lot of commonalities between the British and the U.S. socialist movements. Um, You know, in both countries, I think that we really need to raise the expectations and the capacities of the working class in order to engage in struggle. Um, And I think that, you know, to do that, we have to do a number of things. And and it's really honestly exciting to me to think about the fact that, you know, in the U.K. we could be doing this, and in the U.S. we should be doing this too, like to actually really embed ourselves in a rank-and-file labor movement, you know, getting um, rank-and-file union jobs, engaging in our unions, um, but also, you know, participating in social movements. Um, So pushing forward campaigns, continuing to push forward the campaign to save the NHS. Um, You know, Boris Johnson is going to try and sell it off. And this provides actually an incredible opportunity to unite um, the U.K. working class around one of the most important and popular social institutions. Um, And that's an incredible opportunity, Um, similar to the opportunity we've had in the U.S. for the last four years to build a campaign around Medicare for all. Um, and hopefully one that we'll push forward in the future around passing a Green New Deal. Um, so I think that in, in both the UK and here, we really need to be thinking about how we're incorporating class struggle into our electoral campaigns in order to make them successful. Um, and to do that, we have to be involved in these, in these, in these instances of class struggle um, between elections. So getting union jobs or engaging in social, grassroots social movements, I think is important um, and, you know, I mean, the, the fight for socialism, <laughs> obviously, we live in a capitalist society. Like, this is not an easy fight. Um, we're going to lose sometimes, you know, um, and those losses really hurt. Um, but I think over the past four years, both in in the UK and here, the social both, the socialist movement has really been growing. Um, and, I it, it, um, and I think that it's actually still amazing. And I think that this is our moment to continue pushing neoliberals continue to fight back against our austerity advocates, whether in the Labor Party or in the U.S. And I, I think that it's really important. The work that Momentum is doing is so important to make sure that those austerity advocates don't win the Labor Party back over. You know, like the fight, this fight goes on even if this loss was, was devastating and hurt as much as it did. Um, and, and I think that, you know, in the long run, like I said, in order to really completely push out these austerity advocates out of the Labour Party or, you know, to really sort of like plant the flag for socialism in America. Um, we, again, have to get embedded in rank and file trade unions. We have to build mass campaigns around popular demands that unite the working class, like a Green New Deal, refunding the NHS, winning Medicare for all, freedom of movement for immigrants. And I think these are all really important. Um, of course, there are Really clear differences, um, and we shouldn't look to Labor's defeat. I think as necessarily forecasting anything about Bernie Sanders' prospects. Um, we really need to remember there are different electoral systems. Um, these are these are different candidates, um, and and I think a really important difference is that you know there's nothing in the United States like Brexit. Um, this was a, it, it, it was a media-driven single issue um, that's complex and highly emotional. Um, and it's been dominating the headlines for years. And, and we really just don't have anything like that in the U.S., right? You know, just, it hasn't happened. Um, so that's an important thing for us to remember um, when we're thinking about what are the sort of implications of the law.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's, it's really important to factor in that there's, you know, a different context. The national question is not essential because there isn't like this unifying issue in the same sense that Brexit was. In the UK, um, also the demographics in the United States uh, are just very different. We are a diverse and younger nation than the United Kingdom. So there's there's all these factors uh, beyond that. And also, that we we are uh, operating from a place where we have a much less robust social democracy, if you can even call what the labor liberal coalition of the New Deal era. Um, Was social democracy so? There's there's those really big differences, and something that you were um, talking about that I think is really crucial lens to think about uh, these electoral struggles and how they relate to the broader socialist movement is class struggle, and you know you kind of um, focusing on this theme, and then also there's been a lot of discussion about how labor has failed in its traditional. Base. But this isn't just a reflection of message. There has been a transformation of the social relations in the UK as well as here in the US and most countries in the Western imperial core under the neoliberal regime. There's really been a collapse of the organized working class. Um, it's not been totally eradicated, but union membership is down. Um, so, how do socialists navigate? Um, kind of the diminished power of the quote-unquote traditional working class. And is it crucial that we see the working class as a dynamic process that changes through time and a new social base of the working class can emerge through political struggle? And something that I've been really thinking about um, along these lines is the teacher strikes here in the United States.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's a it's a great question. Um, I mean, I I think that socialists should be really, really. I think they should proudly say that if you work for a wage in order to feed yourself and pay your bills, if you are dependent on a family member who does, then you are a member of the working class. And I think that, you know, whether you are a barista in London or a janitor in New York, um, whether you're a teacher in Chicago or a worker in Youngstown, you know, you. You are a member of the working class and your interests are tied to other members of the working class all over the world. Um, And I think that it's important for socialists um, to sort of help forge unity through struggles, right? Um, And connect people who capitalism has really um, made feel like they are isolated and alone and say, no, there are there are things that connect us and there are struggles that unite all of us. Um, and it will benefit everybody. Um, and I think the policies of the Labor Manifesto, and I think these are really similar to Bernie Sanders, are actually some of the best ways forward to link um, workers um, in the U.K. and deindustrialized regions with the sort of new, primarily service-oriented workers in, or, in urban areas. Um, I think like a Green New Deal in the U.S. and in reindustrialized Rust Belt to defend vulnerable populations from climate change and fully fund public ser- systems, services, free college. Highly paid workers, small class sizes, all of these things are are policies that can help unite a working class. And I think that those are the things that we should really be fighting for. Um, So I I definitely think that, you know, we should be thinking of the working class as as the diverse and the powerful working class that it is um, and that it is reflective of everyone who works um, and, you know, be fighting for the demands that link people um, and put them into into struggle um, and allow us to, to fight the capitalists <laughs> um, so that we can actually win this world. Um, and of course, that doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I think that if we, if we are successful in sort of waging these campaigns around elections and even between elections, um, we will be doing this, this important work of, of building a socialist movement, um, one campaign, one worker, one struggle at a time. Um,
1: and I think that, that is very important and very exciting to me. Yeah, yeah, I really couldn't agree more with you uh, on that. And I think there's something we we saw in this 2019 election that there's a real problem. Some, you know, on the left as well as in general, of seeing past the idea of the working class. It's very homogenous, um, and you know, really when you hit these points of unity with people, the kind of socialist policies that that Corbyn and Sanders espouse are instantly not just recognizable, but powerful. Like people find a connection with them because these are things that everybody wants.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so cool. Oh,
1: sorry, go ahead.
2: I just was going to say, to pick up on what you were saying about the teachers, I I think that, you know, the teacher strike wave that we saw in the U.S. really has emboldened workers um, across industries, right? Like the teachers went out, but, you know, General Motors went out, um, Stop and Shop went out. Um, And I think that like this shows us that, the working class is diverse, and they work in all of these places, and they can use their labor to actually stop production and actually push for demands um, that that don't just win them things in their workplaces, but um, increase the level of consciousness across the working class. Um, and that's incredibly exciting, too, no matter where you live um, or, or who you are.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's so um, important to, to look at it in the sense that the working class is as you were describing, like everyone who has to sell their labor, their time for wage to survive. Um, so th- there is this massive working class, but it's divided up into these different segments because of capitalist production and also because of um, you know ideology and also kind of, it, there is historical differentiation of property ownership and all um, really crucial factors. But there is this underlying universal force, but it only can be transformed. Into a political, uh, like a, an effective political force, through struggle, and so centering that in socialist politics is really key for building power. And I, um, I do have a couple more questions that I'm hoping to ask you, but I do want to make sure that we um, open up some time for our listeners to call in. Um, and I just want to remind everyone that uh, you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com or sign up for our newsletter to get links to what we talk about on the show. You can do that on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at nycrpm. Today, we're talking about the uh, United Kingdom's elections last week and the implications for um, American socialists. We have about 10 minutes left in the show, um, so we'd love for our listeners to call in and you know ask about what we've been discussing or anything that's related to the struggle for socialism, the struggle against capitalism. So please call in at 212-209-2877. Again, that's 212 209 two eight seven seven uh so um while we're waiting for uh, listeners to call in uh, i just want to ask you megan how is the sanders campaign like concretely working alongside social movements and labor organizing and i know there's distinctions between dsa's campaign for bernie and the bernie campaign itself but is there any way you could elaborate on that relationship
2: yeah definitely um I, and again, this is, you know, sort of me analyzing from outside of the Sanders campaign, what I see them doing. Um, but I really, I, I really love to follow, um, democratic socialist electoral campaigns. I think that we learn a lot from them. And I think that Bernie Sanders is running, you know, the most incredible sort of revolutionary campaign that we've seen in in a lifetime. And I think that one of the reasons, one of the ways that you see this is through the way, is through him lifting up labor struggles and social movements through his through his campaign, um, whether it's in a rally or a town hall where he is, you know, bringing labor leaders and not just you know elected leaders but rank and file members to speak before him, um, or if it's through him using his incredible social media to sort of lift up the struggles, or just refusing to go to a debate because he will not cross the picket line. Um, Bernie Sanders is really, I mean, I think embodying what I would call a class struggle um, campaign. So a campaign that is about, you know, him winning this office, but also about building the power of these other movements and the power of labor through his campaign.
0: I think that's um, electoral- absolutely oh, – sorry to cut you off because we, we do have a caller um, live yeah, in the show, right. and I want to make sure that we all get to hear their question. But I just wanted to say that I absolutely – agree in the the manner that he's centering like something like at the chicago teachers strike authorization rally i would uh, recommend anyone go check out that speech if you want to you know see the way that sanders is connecting the struggles from below with his kind of political revolution um maybe not at the top but kind of in the center of the discourse and how he's elevating those struggles. So we have a caller. Uh, you're live in Revolutions Per Minute, WBAI. What's your name? What's your question or comment?
3: Hi. Am I online?
0: Hey, you are on, you're live on Revolutions um, Per Minute. Right.
3: Okay, thank you for taking my call. I, I'm new to this, uh, to this program, so I was listening and I was curious to your description of the DSA. I've heard somewhat, some some uh, allusion to it in, in different media outlets, but when I think of socialism, I think of nationalizing trees. Is that the platform that the DSA is promoting in terms of nationalizing the energy industry, nationalizing uh, the different industries that we have in this country? Is that ultimately where the DSA would like to take the country? And if so, why not give a more open uh, description of what the ultimate goal of the DSA is, so that you can actually have an open conversation of what your goals are. I know Medicare for all is an immediate goal, but that's you know nationalizing the healthcare in one sense. But I think a bigger, broader perspective of what the ultimate goal of the DSA is, and if it's not, then to, to say that it's not. But I think what's con- what difficult for people to understand is classically the D- uh, socialist movement is about nationalizing most of the country's natural resources and whatever else is worthwhile for to nationalize it, if that's the case then i would it would be nice for the dsa to have an open platform and to have that argument with the people because there's no turning back from not reasoning back or you have very severe consequences that that are, you know, that are the case. So I'd love to hear what the uh, panelists have to say about uh, what the actual true platform and what the ultimate true, you know, ideal uh, ESA government would look like. Thank you for taking my call.
0: Um, well, thank you very much for your comments on this. I don't know if you want uh, to also address this, um, Megan, considering you are on the National Political Committee.
2: Sure. I can definitely take a step at it, and then I would love to hear what you think, too. Um, I think that, you know, I really appreciate that question, um, and thank you for calling in and listening to this um, program. I, I think the first thing to say is just that, you know, Demo- we, are, we are a democratic socialist organization, um, and there are some questions that we don't have figured out. Like, I don't think that DSA knows what its ideal future government looks like. I think what we all know is that we believe that we live in an unjust and unfair society, um, that capitalists are able to um, wield an extreme amount of power um, that they have accumulated off of the labor of the majority of people in this world. Um, and that that is not fair. And that people who work and people who create the value of our society should be able to decide what the society they live in looks like. Um, you know, I personally think there are definitely, um, industries that should be national, um, health insurance, for example, I believe should not exist. Um, I don't think that people should make money, private money off of, um, someone else's health. Um, I think that it, everyone should have access to good health insurance and, and, no one should, there should be no, no profit incentive involved in that. Um, but I think that you are, you know, hitting on a question that is very real, you know, what is. What does an ideal socialist society in America look like? And and sadly, I just don't think that we really have the answer to that right now. Beyond the fact that we know that we want to live in a society free of exploitation, a society where we have the freedom of choice, but also the freedom to live the lives that we wanna live um, without having to be worried about our boss firing us um, for organizing. Or, um, you know, going into debt because we got cancer or um, having to pay off our student loans for the rest of our lives. Um, I know that's not directly answering your question. I'm sorry, it can't be more satisfying. Um, But I think that that's that's a little bit of how I think about this. Um, And I'm sure, Jake, you have some thoughts on it, too.
0: Yeah, so I'll I'll try and uh, I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone in DSA um, because I think it is important to consider the the process through which proposals um, and sort of uh, the ideal vision is sent into motion that goes through a democratic process within the organization. Um, But I do believe the collective message of the organization is that we do have a horizontal goal of a small d democratic control over the means of production, distribution, um, and all these other uh, political economic terms that you could realize. So there is that sort of horizontal goal, and then we, you know, collaborate um, in a democratic process to set our priorities, what campaigns, what organizing we're focused on. And something like the energy sector that hasn't been specifically addressed uh, the eco socialists um, got their plan through the convention, which calls for a sort of mu- municipalization of. Public power, so public ownership, but it's not just on the national level. You have ownership at the city level. You have state ownership. So it's it's a variety of levels of public ownership. So there's there's not just the nationalization model. Like there's a lot of people in DSA that support worker cooperatives and confederations of worker cooperatives that collaborate um, democratically on economic planning. There are also people who are committed to nationalization of certain industries. So we have we have a big tent with people who have a different ideal that they want to reach. And we work together democratically to decide on these priorities. But the end goal is a society that is democratically owned and managed by the working class, by the mass of the people. Um, And we do have to wrap up um, time is ticking, but I really want to thank both of our guests so much for being on air. And if you have just in like 15 seconds can let someone know how they can get involved with DSA or the Bernie campaign.
2: Absolutely. Um, if people go to Bernie um, and then backslash events, all you have to do is type in your zip code and search and events around DSA for Bernie close to you will pop up. Um, and in New York, I wanna specifically highlight that next this, this Thursday, we have a debate watch party for the debate, which will be a really fun way um, to get plugged in and to meet people. And then on January 19th, uh, we're having a town hall um, about Bernie Sanders and the fight for Medicare for all. And that will be at the YWCA in Brooklyn. Um, and it's another just really great opportunity to come and hear and learn more about DSA Bernie Sanders, and the
0: fight for Medicare. Thank you so much. Uh, We we really got to jump off, but uh, I just want to let everyone know you've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI, and you'll hear from us next week on 99.5 FM at 5 p.m.